So, Jigger, what's your opinion on FICO scores? Like, if you were to think about the the solar revolution, where do FICO scores fit in in their responsibility? Well, they've definitely been helpful in terms of, uh, you know, getting people approved more quickly for solar. Well, what if I could tell you that you could get a FICO score for commercial solar? That would be amazing. <laughs> there is something out there from Energetic Insurance. They've developed a policy called the Enerate Credit Cover Policy, and they're calling it the easy button for commercial solar. It's basically a FICO score uh, for commercial solar, and it enables savvy developers and investors to quickly finance commercial solar projects and turn around portfolio refinancings faster. So to find out more about this insurance policy, go to energeticinsurance.com slash GTM and submit your projects today. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power is a leading manufacturer of high-density, high-voltage energy storage solutions for all kinds of markets, utility, industrial, microgrids, and mission critical. Core Power designed its Mark I energy storage system with best-in-class safety features like integrated safety handles, concealed front panel covers, and module front display. Jigger, how much do you want those integrated safety handles? So much. <laughs> The Mark I offers market-leading energy density while maintaining lower installation and operation costs. Core Power is taking orders right now for deliveries beginning in the spring. Find out more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E power.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome this week, the new standard is being set for corporate climate targets. Microsoft promises to remove all carbon that it's ever put in the atmosphere, going back to when it was founded in an Albuquerque garage in 1975. That includes a billion dollars in carbon removal tech. Can it pull off such an ambitious plan? Then a landmark suit was dismissed. 21 young people who sued the federal government for the right to live in a stable climate prevailed, and they prevailed, and they prevailed until they lost. A judge agreed with their case, but said the courts weren't the place to remedy climate change. What does it mean for future litigation? Plus, we have a new member of the gang. It's time for some initiation. Uh, first, over to the OGs of the gang, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. They are here, as usual, to discuss these stories. Catherine's over there in Washington, D.C. Hey, Catherine. Hello. Happy to be here and really happy to welcome Ingrid. Jigger Shaw is out there in San Francisco this week. Hey, Jigger, how are you? Doing well. Just trying to make sure that, you know, Ingrid gets the same time zone treatment. <laughs> <laughs> I was teasing Ingrid's introduction here. Uh, we've got our senior editor out on the West Coast over there with Jigger in Los Angeles. Uh, it is Ingrid Lobet. She is going to be with us uh, behind the scenes and in front of the mic in a lot of different ways. She's going to be helping us sound better and helping establish the, the tone and direction of the show. Ingrid, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we wanted to bring you on initially on the show to introduce you to folks because you bring a really rich reporting career to this show. So you've covered environmental issues and energy issues for a long time, both in radio and print. And, and I want to kind of cover some of the areas of your expertise. First, I understand that you were in construction, more specifically carpentry, right. early in your career. Right. I, I remodeled older homes, framing, windows, uh, rebuilding porches, 
Um, I really got to see what's inside walls, insulation, how heat escapes out of or sneaks into buildings. And you get a sense of the energy efficiency of the existing housing stock. And um, I think that turns out to be important sometimes because uh, most of our housing stock was built like before 1980. So having a background in carpentry and construction, what kind of perspective does that give you on the integration of like clean energy in the built environment? You know, I just think it gives me um, a different set of questions to ask. If we say, oh, we, we are going to put thin films on asphalt composition shingles, for example, I'm thinking, okay, and what's going to happen if you set a ladder on top of those shingles? What's going to happen when the roofer goes up to your roof to fix a plumbing vent? Or am I accidentally going to break a circuit when I you know, do something rough on the roof? It, it maybe just gives me a few extra questions to ask. Uh, Catherine has mentioned that she's been going through this really long remodeling of her house, maybe her bathroom. Maybe uh, after we're, we're done here, you can go help her with that <laughs> over in Virginia. I'm on it, Catherine. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> You've had a long and varied career in radio and print. You've worked a decade as Western Bureau Chief at the public radio program Living on Earth, which is a really famous environmental show. Then you were in Houston on the investigative team at the Houston Chronicle. And then you covered electricity and natural gas in California. So you've seen all these major trends. Can you identify any story arcs across your career that informed your reporting in those different outlets? I think I got really lucky as to the timing of when I started working at Living on Earth. It was right at the point when California was passing its very first climate change law, which is not the law that is often referred to as the landmark climate change law, but there was a a new legislator, a first-term legislator in the California State Legislature, and she had been a teacher, and she was approached by a a little-known, a lesser-known environmental organization who said, hey, would you be willing to sponsor this legislation that would regulate carbon dioxide out of vehicles? And all the other legislators they had asked said no, because they had more experience, and it sounded ludicrous and like you would be up against the auto industry. And she was new and she said yes. And that became the first carbon dioxide tailpipe emissions law in the country. And the responsibility for implementing that went to the California Air Resources Board, which is arguably the most powerful environmental organization in the world. So over the years, I really got to see how the California economy got to change Uh, into one that is very much uh, carbon constrained. You know, this is not just you as a reporter focused on this. You have actually focused on the climate science as well. And so you more recently got your master's degree focused on climate science. What did that entail? And and did you come out of that more terrified than ever? I, I don't think I came out of it more terrified. What I got to actually do there, it was really fun. I got to spend a semester on different solar technologies and a semester on different wind technologies and a semester on environmental law and on environmental chemistry. And that's what I wanted to do because I wanted to get a better feel for the physics underlying climate change and also the physics underlying the thermodynamic processes that are the way that we make a lot of our energy. I I feel really lucky and happy to have had a chance to spend time around people who could uh, explain that to me and help me understand it. Maybe this will help our audience understand the direction of the show going forward. Do you find yourself to be an optimistic person or a pessimistic person, knowing what you know about environmental problems, climate science, and where energy technologies are headed? 
I have days of each whenever I think about how long carbon dioxide lasts in the atmosphere, whenever I think about uh, every extra trip that somebody makes to go pick up an ingredient for dinner in a car that burns gasoline, and think that those grams or pounds of carbon dioxide are still going to be in the atmosphere when their grandchildren are on Earth. I don't feel optimistic, but every time I spend time in university laboratories or with engineers or realize, you know, just how much is already uh, been discovered and just needs some help ramping up to commercialization, I feel really positive. And we haven't been able to predict adequately how quickly things can change over a short period of time. So I'm still hopeful for engineering genius fixes. I think we all share that split. Not Catherine, though. She's the eternal optimist oh, of the show. Gosh, yeah. I'm uh, I'm happy no matter what, right? <laughs> no, I, I have I have my days. Ingrid Lobet is our new senior editor. She's uh, with us from Los Angeles, and you'll hear more from her in future shows. Thanks, Ingrid. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we're going to talk about Microsoft's ambitious new climate plan. First, though, the Energy Gang is brought to you by Energetic Insurance. You know, if you're in solar, you know that Operating solar portfolios are only as valuable as the credit profiles underlying those investments. And in commercial solar, the shifting credit tied to those PPAs is a big risk for portfolio returns and valuation. So Energetic Insurance has this new policy that's developed that transfers this credit risk to a highly rated insurer, giving developers and investors the confidence and certainty of cash flows required to unlock institutional capital for back leverage or securitization. It is the easy button for commercial solar. The enter rate credit cover is easy to understand. Insurance that enables financing for unrated or below investment grade corporate off takers. If you want a fast and easy way to provide a high credit backstop to your portfolio, go to energeticinsurance.com slash GTM and submit your projects today. That's Energetic Insurance. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power serves the growing demand for industrial energy storage solutions, and it is taking orders right now for six gigawatt hours of capacity that will soon be available in 2020. Core Power is based in the U.S., and it's situated to meet the growing global demand of the energy storage market. It is planning to build a new battery manufacturing plant right here in the U.S., and once it's operational, it's going to have 10 gigawatt hours of scalable manufacturing capacity, and you can get access to that storage to pair with renewable energy and use for industrial applications. So if you want a partner that is going to help you build tomorrow's grid, it's Core Power. Find out more at korepower.com. Okay, over to Microsoft. The end of the tens was all about 100% renewable energy goals, but Microsoft may be setting the new standard for the 2020s, going carbon negative. The company pledges to remove the equivalent of all its emissions since its founding 45 years ago. It's going to do that by 2050. It plans to become carbon negative this decade by 2030, removing more CO2 from the atmosphere that it puts in. That will include investing a billion dollars of its own money into carbon capture methods. That includes uh, technology, like maybe direct air capture or something, or uh, biological solutions, like just planting more trees. And Microsoft wrote this very compelling post outlining the plan, and they drew a distinction between carbon neutrality and net zero emissions. And they're being really transparent about how many carbon credits they buy to offset emissions. And they're bluntly saying, this is what's guided corporate climate plans, and this is not close enough to what we need to be doing. So they actually want to strip carbon from the atmosphere. Let's talk quickly about what's in the plan and then 
Talk about how Microsoft might pull it off. So, Catherine, you have been talking to the folks at Microsoft. First, just outline what's in this announcement. Why is it a big deal? Yeah, so to give credit to Michelle Billig-Petron, she's the Director of Sustainability Policy for Microsoft. She spent some time with me kind of laying this out. And just to give everybody a refresher on what the scopes of emissions are. So scope one emissions are those that are directly owned and controlled by a company. Scope two are purchased energy. So, you know, electricity generation that you would purchase. And then scope three are indirect emissions that are found through your supply chain. So those are the three scopes. And what Microsoft to said is like with scopes one and two, those are going to be easier. That's going to be 100% by 2025. That's going to be clean. And they're able to do that, they think, pretty easily. Now, scope one is only 100,000 metric tons. Scope two, 4 million metric tons. But scope three is 12 million metric tons of CO2. So, so scope three is the hardest and the biggest. And that's what they're trying to get at is like, how do we get to the supply and value chain of their industry to really change? And they are doing some really innovative things. So what are they doing? So one thing that they do is they charge their business units, not their suppliers, but their business units, $15 a ton for carbon. And this covers everything from employee travel to everything they purchase. And that tax, it's essentially a carbon tax on each of their business units, then goes puts back into their sustainability portfolio. But what that also does is that it incentivizes their business units to do better. And it gives everybody skin in the game so that every single person in the organization is going in the same direction to try to reduce carbon in every aspect of the jobs that they do. Jigger, what is new here? So if we think about what other big companies have done, this is rare, but Walmart has been working with its suppliers to slash a gigaton of carbon pollution. I believe the software company Intuit has announced a somewhat similar goal. What is new and different about what Microsoft is trying to do here? Well, I think Microsoft has also been leading the charge on you know, signing up renewable energy projects and figuring out how to do more energy efficiency and all those things. But I think that they've realized, along with Stripe and Shopify, that, you know, you're just not going to get there without negative emissions, right? And I just think that the fact that someone like Microsoft is saying, not just that they're going to spend a million dollars on uh, carbon sequestration, like uh, Stripe announced, but that they were actually going to take their entire company and make sure that they dealt with all of their carbon pollution since it since their founding is just a real difference in milestone right i mean walmart announced saving a gigaton of carbon uh through their supply chain which is enormous and amazing but it doesn't actually even mean that it'll go to zero it just means that you know they've got a really large car embedded scope three carbon footprint and that they're going to take a gigaton out of it. Yeah, so one of the things that Microsoft is doing is they're looking at math, carbon math, and they're giving all of their suppliers this digital tool so that they can you know, track their carbon emissions and actually calculate their sustainability program. So that's going to be really important. And since Microsoft is a data company, that makes total sense. So, Catherine, when you talked to Michelle over at Microsoft, what did she say about how this billion dollars will be spent? Because it sounds like they're going to be it, it's unclear exactly how they're going to spend this money over the a decade or two to start stripping carbon from the atmosphere. What sense do you get of where this money will be deployed? 
Yeah, so this is like a whole separate pot. It's through Microsoft Capital, and it's a billion-dollar innovation fund. And she said this is to take technology from the lab to the market. So that's they're going to be focused on really early-stage technologies that they think are going to make a difference because they see this as a real moonshot. This is a really strong goal for them to put forward, and they're putting in some practical measures, certainly, it within their company, but they need something beyond that. And that's where this innovation fund is coming in. Jigger, what do you think about that innovation fund? And if they came to you and tapped you and said, hey, Jigger, help us spend this money, uh, what would you tell them? Uh, to get their messaging right. Hmm, what do you mean? Um, uh, look, I, I think when you read the blog post, it says that we don't have the technologies to do this, which is patently false. I think we have the technologies today. I think they're not cheap enough. Um, you know, many of them are at you know, there's a lot of technologies, everything from direct air capture to uh, solid uh, sort of absorbance that, you know, folks are putting out in the marketplace. There's also a lot of, you know, tree planting initiatives, right? Mark Benioff just announced his one trillion tree initiative. And then there's um, a lot of soil carbon initiatives that have been uh, launched by Nori and Indigo Ag and others, right, where you can actually you know, absorb carbon dioxide back into the soil um, at, uh, you know, $10 a ton. So I think there's actually a lot of stuff out there. I think we need deployment-led innovation, right? So part of our challenge is people haven't been using the 45Q tax credits and really deploying a lot of these innovations that people have come up with. Um, And so, like, in that way, I think Microsoft's going to be hugely helpful. But I hope they don't continue the line of we don't have the technologies to get there. Well, is it just that they're saying that Microsoft alone can't get the technologies to where they need to be? Because, you know, a billion dollars is a lot of money for a company, but it's not very much money to scale a lot of the solutions that you outlined. You know, the the, the non-sequestration solutions, like, for example, direct air capture. Um, I mean, it is still hard for a company like Microsoft to move the needle on this stuff. So isn't that what they're saying? Let me just give you guys some numbers to put things in perspective, right? When, just to start from the revenue side, when Catherine said that they wanted to, you know, offset their uh, scope three emissions of 12 million tons, right? And their internal price is $15 a ton for scope one and two, it's going to start lower for scope three, but then they're going to make it up. If you assume $15 a ton at 12 uh, million tons, that's $180 million, right? Just so you know, the gross profit of Microsoft was $86 billion last year. Gross. Right? And then you have R&D and everything else, and so you end up with around $40 billion after taxes. Right? So this is not a price problem. Right? Microsoft can pay $300 a ton and still get to zero carbon. Right? And so now the question becomes, who wants to bear the brunt of deployment-led innovation, right? In solar, that was Germany. They paid 45 cents a kilowatt hour for solar, and the price of solar came down, and now we're at two cents, right? And so the question is, what Stripe has done is said, look, we'll pay the $300 a ton because we want the first units of these new breakthroughs to be deployed, and then the next guy's going to get it for 200 bucks, and the next guy's going to get it for 100 bucks, and it's going to keep coming down. I just think that Microsoft's got to decide whether they want to be that group who comes out early and and provides offtake agreements and 
monetization of the 45Q, remember, it's a tax credit. Not unlike solar and wind, it's really hard to find somebody that wants to monetize that 45Q tax credits. And Microsoft pays a lot of taxes. So they could be the largest tax equity investor in 45Q if they wanted to. Okay, so part of this action is the result of Microsoft having an internal carbon price. Now, it hasn't been an extraordinarily high price like uh, Stripe is factoring in, but still it shows that when you have leadership that sets some kind of internal carbon price, it's going to push you to more action. And clearly a lot of companies are, are doing this, and the ones that are taking the biggest actions are the ones that are modeling this internally. So how much is that a factor? And Catherine, are they setting themselves up to manage risk better by putting in place this carbon price internally? Yeah, so they did not want to talk about risk at all. They wanted instead to talk about opportunity and responsibility. And they do feel a huge responsibility given what's happening to the planet. And they see this as a business opportunity. They did not see this as risk management or they were not. That's not how they wanted to tell their story. Well, but that, I mean, but that is the story from the past, right? I mean, the reason why all these big guys are doing renewable energy is because Greenpeace made them do it 10 years ago and made it such that they didn't have a social license to build these huge data centers without agreeing to 100% renewable energy. Remember, you know, Mark Zuckerberg actually fought Greenpeace tooth and nail and then finally had to relent because he realized he was an outlier. I mean, even in Microsoft's case, Microsoft's management team refused to sign corporate PPAs until after um, Steve Ballmer left as CEO. It wasn't until the current management team came in that they said, you know what, you're right, we have an obligation to the planet. And, you know, the people who worked within Microsoft Sustainability Office was, you know, were sort of lost under Gates and Ballmer, right? And so part of this is really about managing risk, right? It's about having the social license to print money through the cloud and all the other things that they do by minimizing their their environmental footprint. So last week we talked about BlackRock and we broke down some of the reasons why Larry Fink would make the decision to reorient uh, BlackRock's investment portfolio. And I wonder what are the factors that go into a company like Microsoft making this decision. So there's certainly risk management, financial risk management, policy risk management, even if they didn't want to explicitly talk about that with you, Catherine. And then there's reputation management, which is really key. And certainly these companies have responded to the public pressure campaigns over the last decade to get them to invest in more renewables and then to come up with bigger climate plans. And then all of a sudden, it seems like at the C-suite level, there is some moral decision-making taking hold, right? The, these executives have kids at home. They, um, you know, they, they, they have a younger generation that's asking them what they're going to do about this problem. And so they have to face that in a very real way. So how should we think about all these forces working together to influence a new kind of plan like this at Microsoft? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, uh, the CEO of Anheuser-Busch said to me, we're going to 100% renewables because we want to be selling beer in 3,000 years. And that means we have to protect the planet. And honestly, it came down to, 
It's about making money in 3,000 years. So, um, you know, that's a sim- that's a huge simplification. But that's what the people at Microsoft are saying. It's like, look, this is something we all have to be part of. Like the writing is on the wall. The science is there. Um, we need to be one of the leaders to do this. And so we're going to take a stand and we're going to have our president, our CFO, and our CEO together and throughout the organization working toward the same goal. Can we all just agree that they can sell beer in 3,000 years, but no more spiked seltzer? (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, I don't understand spiked seltzer. They're all in on it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for, for what it's worth, I've been working with Microsoft for on climate change since 2009. Um, And I have to say that the single most important person in my mind at Microsoft is Amy Hood, who's their CFO. I don't think she gets the credit for it, but I think she's the one who really, I think, even in, even, you know, earlier in her career, um, said this is important. And this is something that we actually have to lead on. And it took a while for her to get buy-in from everyone else. But I think that, you know, I just think real kudos to Amy for um, for leading this charge within Microsoft. I, I think this announcement is is enormous, and I think it sets the new standard that all Fortune 500 companies are going to be held to. Okay, so we turn now to a very important lawsuit that has just hit its biggest roadblock yet. Kelsey Cascadia Rose Juliana is one of 21 young adults and kids who sued the federal government back in 2015 for, quote, willfully ignoring the impending harm of climate change to the place that she grew up and depends on. It's bounced all around the courts. And people said the theory of the lawsuit would never survive legal tests. That theory is that young people have a right to a stable climate and a healthy atmosphere. They and all future generations do. But their effort did survive a lot of legal tests, and it lasted five years. Now, the Ninth Circuit has concluded, reluctantly, the opinion says, that the kids' grievances were true, and the government has long promoted fossil fuel use despite knowing it can cause catastrophic climate change, but it is beyond the power of the court to order, design, and supervise that remedy. The remedy would have been the decarbonization of the American economy. So what does this mean for the way the courts treat climate damages And why was this case so important? Catherine, you spoke with the lead attorney on the Juliana case. What are the issues that they were addressing? Yeah, so Andrea Rogers from the organization Our Children's Trust was the lead on this, along with others in her organization. And what they did was they used two constitutional arguments. One is substantive due process, saying that uh, the U.S. government violated the rights of life, liberty, and property. And the second one was equal protection of the law, which is that the government um, unduly discriminated against children because of the way that they propagated policies on climate change knowingly that were harmful. So there's sort of two different uh, constitutional arguments. Now, what Andrea told me was as an example, which helped me understand a little bit about how this works. So in Brown versus the Board of Education, for example, the the courts found that segregation violates equal protection under laws, right? So what the court said was that, okay, now, now the government has to figure out how do you address the problem and come up with the policies to do so? It's not that the court is doing that, but now the government needs to do it. And that is the same in this case, which is 
the the litigants are asking, all right, we what we want the court to find, and and by the way, they have not actually presented their case in trial yet, and that's what they really want to do, which is they're asking for an en banc hearing, which is not just three judges, but the full set of judges of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to listen to this case and to let them present it at trial, because what they want to show is that Yes, this is a problem that the government caused, but that it is solvable. And they have reports written by Jim Williams and Mark Jacobson that show that there is a way to resolve and to get relief of these problems if if the government is instructed to do so. So part of the issue is like they want to get to trial so they can actually present their arguments. So what would happen if the court ruled in their favor? Like, what would it force the government to do? How would this inform future policymaking? What would be the implications of this case if it went in the other direction? It would mean that the government would have to come up with some kind of a proposal for a solution. And what that solution could look like could be public policy, obviously, that, that, that anything that the government has some control over. Um, because, of course, the government right now is, is even as we speak, rolling back regulation um, that will only increase the impact of climate change. The other piece of this is that when the value of life is calculated by the government, uh, children's lives are discounted. And part of the issue is that they're they're held at a lower value than adults. And in fact, over time, children now are going to be disproportionately impacted by negative climate. Uh, change as we move forward. So that's another thing they're trying to change is even just the way life is calculated. Jigger, why is this case important? Well, it's important because it shows, you know, the value of of the Constitution. And, and it, it, it talks about how each individual person who lives in this country has constitutional rights. And in this case, you know, there are 21 children now young adults that are actually fighting to maintain their constitutional rights, right? And I think that, I think framed in that way, uh, there's actually a really interesting case to be made. And the judges here really sided with them. They said, you know, you're right. You actually do have a constitutional right here. I just don't know what to do to remedy it. And I don't know that the courts are the right place to seek your remedy, but you made a good case, right? And from that perspective, that's valuable, right? I mean, it, it, you don't know what would have happened it today if five years ago these guys didn't try. So when you think about Greta Thunberg and her, you know, fight by herself, basically, just to take Fridays off, um, I don't know if she was inspired by the work that these guys did, but she could have been. The same thing's true with all these kids now who come out and protest regularly across the country, right, and across the world. And so you never know what effort actually led to the snowball effect uh, of where we are today. But I do think that the bravery that these kids showed, I mean, it couldn't have been easy to go through this process, um, was really admirable. Yeah, I think that Greta definitely was impacted by this case, has has said that and, and indicated that. And it's really been over the five years, Jigger, exactly what you say, where there were, you know, some kids that were interested in this. And now there are millions of youth that are inspired by this and activated. And so you have a larger groundswell of a youth movement, but you also have, from the legal point of view, a lot more legal attention being paid to human and civil rights that climate change impacts. 
So back to the legal argument here. I mean, don't we already have a famous case from the Supreme Court that requires the federal government to regulate carbon dioxide as a harmful pollutant, Massachusetts versus EPA? I mean, and what do we do? We craft policy and then the one administration comes in and neuters it. And so we have no effective policy to basically meet what the law requires us to do. So even if these kids won, couldn't we just, you know, find a way to for government to screw it up? So I think that's the wrong framing, Stephen. And I think it's important for us to recognize that. This case was brought up against the Obama administration. And it was brought up against the Obama administration because it accuses the government of promoting fossil fuels for decades with deliberate indifference to the peril they knowingly created. Right. So they were saying even the Obama administration was pushing fracking like it was going out of style, was like was not doing the right thing. And even when the Obama administration regulated carbon, we talked about it extensively, how unambitious they really were. They weren't actually protecting these kids' future. They were really saying, well, here's what we can politically kind of maybe get away with. Right. And so I think that they're saying that the government response to climate change has been feeble under the Obama administration, of course, under the Trump administration, right? So I don't think this is a one administration comes in and does positive stuff and one does negative stuff. They both do crappy stuff. Yeah, I totally agree with Jigger on this. This is something that's happened for decades, and the government has knowingly put into place policy that would not remediate climate change. All right, we'll call it there. And now it's time for our free electrons. Catherine, what's piquing your interest this week? Yeah, there was a report released by Michael Sivak from Sivak Applied Research that looks at vehicle miles traveled in each state. And it's really interesting. You can see it on greencarcongress.com. And uh, the top state for vehicle miles traveled is Wyoming. Um, And there is some correlation, if you look at it, between, you know, the states with the lowest population density, because they may have the largest area and they have a lot more further to travel that with the vehicle miles traveled. Um, And on the other extreme, the District of Columbia has the lowest vehicle miles traveled per person with the highest population density. So it was really interesting to kind of look at that and to compare the different states. And there's only one of the 10 top states with the highest total vehicle miles travel, which is Georgia, which is also among the top, the 10 states with the highest vehicle mile traveled per person. So it's, it's pretty interesting on uh, just looking at where, where, what states, how states rank, and then you can kind of figure out like, all right, what does that mean for EV charging infrastructure and where the EV markets might go, depending on what vehicles we need in each of those areas. Yeah, no, I I love it. And I also think that this gets you to a much broader audience of readers. I mean, uh, Wallet Nerd had put together something on this in 2018. And I do think that what they showed was that um, gasoline costs as a percentage of people's budgets have been going up pretty dramatically. And I think uh, I think this data proves that. Jigger, what's your free electron? So there's just so much stuff going on right now. So I had a really hard time picking one. So I'm going to pick one, but I'm just telling you that it was hard. <laughs> like, you know, we went through this a lot last year where you, you both of you kept picking multiple stories. So I'm glad to hear that you're more disciplined in 2020. Yes, yes. So the story I'm going to pick, just because it's so emotional to me, is the fact that Arizona Public Service came out officially and said they're going to be net zero. Woo-hoo! And 
I have been battling Arizona Public Service since 1998. I think they have done downright illegal things in their battles during those years. And it's just amazing. This new leadership that they brought in recently has just changed the entire culture of that utility. And I have to say, like, it's for the better. The people of Arizona will be far better for it. Yeah, I'm happy for everyone, especially you, Jigger. (laughs) So, Jigger, that perfectly brings me into my free electron, which is actually just an accumulation of a lot of different stories. So this week, Bloomberg rolled out a new and improved version of Bloomberg Green with a letter from the editor about how they're going to cover climate change differently. The New York Times, of course, recently hired an even bigger staff of energy and climate reporters to try to get a handle on how to cover climate change differently. And I do feel like people are really grappling with this topic in a very different way. And you see that in both the stories that people are telling and the type of announcements that we're seeing from Arizona Public Service, from BlackRock, what we discussed last week, from Microsoft. The announcements are getting extremely ambitious and there's a moral argument tied to them. In addition, you saw this latest poll from Yale come out about how many more people are alarmed about climate change. And the number of alarmed people is increasing at a rate faster than ever before. So there's something different happening right now as we enter the 2020s. And I think a lot of people are just realizing that this is real. It's happening right now. And you know, the 2020 framework is is the decade that a lot of scientists started to pinpoint in research papers as the turning point. And now all of a sudden we're in that moment and we realize it's a turning point and a lot of this stuff is just happening. So it's just extraordinary to see the amount of stuff that's been piling up in just the first month of this year. Yeah, I totally agree. I can't wait for February. <laughs> Too many stories to choose from. Uh, We will talk about Arizona Public Service in a more detailed way, though. That has to be at the top of our list. That is another extraordinary story. And we're going to call it at that. We will hand select the best stories for you next week. So stay tuned for this ongoing drama in the decarbonization of our energy system. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-hosts. Uh, I am the executive producer. Sure, we all have fancy titles, but you are the folks who make this show happen. So thank you for listening. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we have a bunch of new listeners since the beginning of the year. So thank you. If you want to show your support and help us grow, send out the word on social media or send a link to a friend or colleague. Even better, give us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. We can be found anywhere you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, etc. And we'll find you here next week with us as always. This is the Energy Gang Weekly Debates and Discussions on the fast-changing world of energy, clean tech, and the environment. We'll talk to you soon.